Hi, welcome back to the World of Migration, a podcast from the Migration Policy Institute that delves into interesting topic on immigration, immigrant integration, and humanitarian protection with some of the world's big thinkers and policymakers. My name is Camille Ocoz and I'm your host today and an Associate Director at MPI Europe. In this episode, we'll take a dive into migration dynamics in West Africa, what's new, and how African leaders are responding to these trends. We'll also discuss what could be done to bridge the gap between European and African policymakers and move towards safer and better managed migration between the two continents. In the past decades, governments in West Africa have directed more attention to better managing man migration. Leaders in the free movement area called ECOWAS have become more interested in boosting remittances, better connecting this financial flow with investment opportunities, as well as working with diaspora to encourage development benefits. In turn, they've sought to promote safe and legal pathways and to make recruitment practices safer and fairer. And in parallel, there have been growing concerns about border security. West African leaders are now trying to prevent the spillover of armed groups while also supporting cross-border trade and other livelihood activities. In parallel, European donors have supported the drafting of national migration policies in West Africa, and they have funded various actions to fight smuggling and trafficking, and ease the reintegration of migrants returning from Europe and other parts of the world. These efforts have been part of a broader agenda to curb irregular arrivals to Europe and to negotiate return and readmission agreement, and we'll talk about the implication this political orientation and capacity building efforts. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Leander Kandilige to discuss all these issues. Leander is a senior lecturer at the Center for Migration Study at the University of Ghana. He's been conducting research on migration trends and policy for many years with a focus on labor migration in Africa. Most recently, Leander has been involved in the MEDEC project, which seeks to examine the relationship among migration, inequality, and development within South-South migration corridors. He's also conducted a rapid assessment of the effect of COVID-19 on access to social protection by migrants who work in the informal sector in Ethiopia, Côte d'Ivoire, Malawi, Cameroon, and Morocco. And finally, Leander is a member of the advisor group of the MPI Bosch Initiative Beyond Territorial Asylum, making my protection work in a border world. Leander, welcome. Hello. I'm glad to have the opportunity to share some perspectives on the governance of migration within the West African context, as well as relations in the EU. I'll start with a question about what has changed in the region in the past few years, because we've seen many policy development, many new programs that have sought to shape what migration trends look like in West Africa. Um, but can you maybe start with an overview of what are the most salient uh, transformation? Right. So um, I want to start here by noting that the West African subregion has an active population. And then the average age is about uh, 15 years for up to 47% of the population. And this naturally has its own advantages and disadvantages when it comes to mobility and migration aspirations of the largely youthful population within the region. Uh, but then the main vehicle for the governance of migration has been the establishment of ECOWAS which is a regional economic community, which has an aim of promoting economic integration across the West African subregion by creating a single regional economic space to promote collective self-resilience processes of countries in the subregion, but also to promote cooperation and integration 
in social and cultural activities, but most especially for free mobility within the community for its citizens. Now, there have been several programs that have taken place within the ECOWAS space, but I want to focus on two main uh, programs. The first one is the Free Movement of Persons and Migration in West Africa. That's the FFM uh, West Africa Project, which aims to maximize the development potential of free movement of persons and migration in West Africa. And this is done by effectively looking at the implementation of the ECOWAS Free Movement Protocol and then the ECOWAS Common Approach on Migration. And the main areas of focus for this particular one is on data management, border management, labor migration, and counter-trafficking. And the strategy here is to do so at three special levels, at the ECOWAS Commission level, the national level, and also the sub-national level. And they have three clear priorities for this particular approach. One is to strengthen the capacity of the ECOWAS Commission to lead to an intra-regional dialogue on free movement and migration issues, and also to act as a platform for policy development and then harmonization. Secondly, to strengthen the capacities at the national level, institutions of ECOWAS member states, in the areas of migration data management, in the area of uh, migration policy development, and then border management, labor migration, and counter-trafficking. And then finally, to promote active engagement of non-state actors and local authorities in information and protection activities for the benefit of migrants and also cross-border uh, populations within the sub-region. Thank you very much, Leander, for walking us through the story of, of the ECOWAS area, but also yeah, mentioning this one of these development projects that have really thought to make the freedom of movement in the region effective. Um, you mentioned a second project. Can you, can you tell us a bit more about what that's been about? So the second project is uh, the Migration Dialogue for West Africa, also known as MIDWA. And this is just a platform for ECOWAS member states to be able to discuss at the regional level common migration issues, challenges, but also opportunities, which typically cannot be addressed by a single state in isolation. And it allows for the cooperation between ECOWAS as a bloc, but also third countries, as well as other international consultative uh, for uh, on free movement and migration. So this second initiative that I'm talking about has different thematic uh, focuses. If I may touch on just three of them, one area of interest is migration data and then statistics, but also protection of migrants' rights and issues of climate change. And I'm, I'm happy to expand on these as uh, the conversation progresses. Thanks Thank for, for outlining this other project and really all of this question around migration governance and improving freedom of movement in the region. Um, it's interesting you said you talk about this one because, you know, a number of researchers have argued in recent years, EU program have really focused on border management, anti-smuggling, anti-trafficking efforts. And that they have on the country, I would say, amper the freedom of movement within the region. Is that what you've also witnessed in your research? Or would you argue on the contrary, freedom of movement, you know, thanks to a number of this initiative, has actually moved forward um, and become more of a reality for, for the people who live there? Okay, thank you very much for this. Um, actually, this is a controversial issue, I must say. On the one hand, the financial and practical support that the EU has been providing to West African states, as well as ECOWAS as a collective, have generally enhanced the region's ability to develop policy responses to emerging trends 
that are associated with migration and mobility. The issue of human trafficking and smuggling is real, and the West African governments routinely lack the capacity to deal effectively with these threats without external funding. I'll provide you with one practical example. In the case of Ghana, there was a regional security conference that was organized and facilitated by ICMPD, which is the International Center for Migration Policy Development in Ghana. And all the relevant security agencies for Ghana, Togo, Cote d'Ivoire, and Burkina Faso participated in this conference in 2021. And the conference resulted in a communique, joint communique on border management, intelligence gathering and sharing, and cross-border collaborations, among others. Now, you can see that this will have a real positive impact on the beneficiary countries. However, on the other hand, you also have EU programs that have sought to stop irregular migration from West Africa to the EU. And these programs have had negative impacts on freedom of movement within ECOWAS. A prime example, if I may uh, add, is that of the EU preying on impoverished Niger to sign a migration management deal in 2015 in exchange for a considerable amount of cash and then logistical support. Now, this deal has led to the criminalization of all ECOWAS citizens who travel to Niger because the assumption is that all West Africans in Niger are automatically destined for Europe through Libya. Now, this has fundamentally worked against the freedom of movement rights that are enshrined in the ECOWAS Free Movement Protocol. So this is just an example of how it works both ways. So it's not a straightforward yeah, uh, yeah, it's issue. not. And, th and thanks for outlining that, that it's all, you know, that it's not black and white, uh, but actually all of this program are, are much more nuanced um, and have also had different effects uh, on different countries uh, in the region. You mentioned climate change and the effect of climate change um, on migration trends. And that's something I'd like to go back to because I think that's something we're going to see increasingly in the region. That's probably also going to become increasingly controversial in the way it's addressed. Um, do you already see that in your research, um, how it's affected community in border or in, in areas that are, you know, that have been primarily affected by, by this negative effect? Yes, it's, uh, it's quite obvious that some of the movement, especially the internal migration dimension, you can see that it is informed by climate change um, effects. And this is not lost on the policymakers in the West African subregion. So they are certainly aware of what is going on. And our research also shows that climate change has had this negative implication on populations and intercommunity relations. It has contributed to lower yields. It has led to displacement of communities that rely on rain-fed agriculture. And it has also led to uh, competition for scarce water. Conflicts have ensued between the Fulani nomadic uh, people and their settled communities in countries like Ghana and elsewhere. As such, these governments are grappling with the economic, social, political, and then security dimensions of climate change and the involuntary migration that is triggered as a result of that. So these are borne out by uh, research, and you can see the patterns of movement from arid and semi-arid areas to places where they can engage in non-agricultural jobs. So it's leading to rural urban migration as well as some level of international migration. And you, you've talked about, you know, how this is not lost on the on this part of, of government in West Africa. Um, and I precisely would like to turn to that because a number of this government have adopted or updated the, na the national migration policies 
Um, and it's also been interesting to see growing peer support in the region. Um, I mean, you, you've worked a lot in Ghana. Ghana clearly has a leadership in the area of labor migration. Um, we've also seen how Senegal has such promoted its, its model of local migration governance with other countries like Guinea. Um, would you say overall what we're seeing is, you know, a, a, a way toward better migra managed migration in the region with like better policy, but also policies um, that are actually being enforced uh, and are just not beautiful paper um, that, uh, that, are, that are being published? <laughs> yes, I, I mean, personally, and then from the point of view of research, empirical evidence, you can see that uh, we are on our way to a better man migration management. Because migration policies, whether we are talking about national migration policies, labor migration policies, or diaspora engagement policies, these are critical when it comes to standardizing approaches uh, to create a sense of belongingness for migrants, extending rights to migrants, but also extracting obligations from migrants, and then the members of the West African diaspora. So the drafting of these policies at the national level allows for the brainstorming among multiple stakeholders on national priorities, also looking at the bundle of rights that can be extended to migrants, touching on institutional frameworks for coordinating migration-related issues, and then also working out the best ways of harnessing the benefits of migration and avenues for collaborating with other countries towards mutual protection of rights. So on a whole, you can see that the intention is right. The processes of developing policies is leading to this trend and paving the way towards a well-managed migration within the sub-region of West Africa. Thank you for, for this optimistic uh, outlook in, in a field that's, that's often very, very negative. Um, and I think to follow up on this, so we've said that, you know, there's been better policies um, from your perspective. However, you know, what are the key ingredients that are still missing, um, especially in the field of labor migration? Because we've seen that that's an area where the recruitment, for example, of migrant worker is still often done in a way that's, you know, not necessarily fair, not necessarily safe. Um, mm. From your perspective, and maybe looking at the case of Ghana, uh, where you've done extensive work, what, what's missing? So I think um, there's still this need for ethical recruitment of labor migrants. And this has to be done in a way that protects them from exploitation, issues of abuse, discrimination, and xenophobic attacks. Okay, Now, there, there should be bilateral agreements between origin countries and their popular destination countries. And these bilateral agreements will have to insist on a rights-based recruitment of migrants and then the extension of social protection to migrants, especially during global health emergencies like what happened during COVID, but also man-made and then natural disasters. When they happen, they need to be protections for migrants. Another critical issue that needs to be looked at when it comes to labor migration has to do with the portability of social security contributions because this has severe implications on the welfare and well-being of migrants, especially during emergencies. Now, in terms of boosting relations or, or yeah, engagements with the diaspora community, there is the need for governments to also move away from this constant extraction of obligations from the diaspora members, especially in the form of remittances to a balance, they need to balance this with extension of rights to the diaspora members, which will include largely labor migrants. The current approach 
in my view, is exploitative and is too extractive. So we need to move to a, pro, I mean, a, a position where we have a quid pro quo scenario between extension of rights on the one hand, but also extraction of obligations. So you cannot expect that we are taken from migrants without advancing the same protections that they need to be able to be safe and then productive in their destination countries. Yeah, thank, thank you for outlining that because I think that's that's a bit um, you know different from the discourse we usually hear about about diaspora and the benefits um, that that comes with uh, diaspora engagement in a number of countries. Um, from your perspective, what remain the main obstacle to that? Um, wh- you know, why are government reluctant to to engage uh, more in this uh, in this area? So governments are interested in the extractive aspect. So they want the remittances, they want the skills transfers, they want the investment. But then when it comes to extended rights, like voting rights to uh, diaspora members, it becomes tricky. There's a lot of politics around the diaspora vote, changing local results during a general election, for instance. And I cite a practical example in the case of Ghana, where In 2006, there was a law that extended the right to all Ghanaians abroad, all Ghanaian diaspora members who are duly registered, to be able to participate in national elections. But till date, that law hasn't been implemented because of logistical constraints, or at least that's what the politicians say. You see, so when it comes to extraction of remittances, governments are ready to do that by extension of rights. The ability to hold dual citizenship is a challenge in some countries. Those who have lost their citizenship because they've taken on citizenships of some countries that do not allow you to hold both, like in the case of Germany, they have to be granted the right of abode to be able to be exempted from the requirement of getting visas to go home. These are all steps that could potentially be taken to improve the engagement between governments and then the diaspora community which then gives the governments the moral uh, kind of courage and then right to be able to expect remittances and then transfer of skills and knowledge and investment income from the diaspora. And I think this leads us also to a broader discussion on, you know, the relationship between Europe and Africa on, on this topic. Um, because, you know, from all the political discussion that we're, we've been witnessing um, in, the past, in the past years, it's clear there is a wide gap. Um, and you've been working in Ghana and all over Africa for decades. You also spent time in Europe. Um, so according to you, what do you think are the main mismatches between you know, leaders on, on the two sides? Right. So it's an interesting scenario that we find ourselves in. On the one hand, you have Europe that simply wants to get rid of irregular migrants, full stop, and to prevent the arrival of others. So in effect, what has happened is it's led to this development of a combination of preventive and then defensive measures by the EU. And they are doing this through buying the cooperation of West African nation states to implement more stringent migration and border control outside the EU territory. On the one hand, the defensive mechanism is operated through externalization of migration control responsibilities Securitization, return, and then removal of undocumented migrants. Then, on the other hand, the preventive measures include the creation of jobs in communities of origin, cooperation for development, and then temporary migration programs. Now, on the flip side, on the part of the African leaders, the interest is very different. 
there is a focus on maximizing the returns from all migration, all migration, regular or irregular. And steps are routinely taken to engage the diaspora communities to access collective remittances, float diaspora bonds, invest, encourage them to invest back home, knowledge and skills transfers. These are the areas that uh, keep African leaders awake at night and not the issue of receiving people who have been checked out by the, the EU. So the major mismatch I see here is the fact that the African leaders tend to see migration through a development lens, whilst their EU counterparts see migration through a security lens. And that's where the mismatch is and then the tension uh, has emerged over time. And that needs to be breached. The gap between the two will need to be breached. And I think on this, I have a follow-up question on, on you know, the African perspective, because, you know, I, I think we often talk about Africa as, as a bloc, but you've mentioned Niger, Ghana. It also sounds like different African countries may have different interests in their negotiating, in how they're approaching uh, Europe on this. Um, you know, in West Africa, do you see ECOWAS countries are acting as a bloc when negotiating with the EU? Or on the contrary, they're also divided um, among themselves in terms of priorities and uh, engagement. Right. So it's a bit of both. So on the one hand, the EU, when it suits uh, the bloc, negotiates with ECOWAS as a counterpart bloc. But then goes ahead to strike deals with individual West African countries, like the case of Niger that we mentioned. And to be honest, the different countries have different leverage when it comes to their negotiation stance with the EU. So whereas you will see countries like Senegal, countries like Nigeria, countries like Ghana, being able to push back and then to negotiate more favorable terms, the impoverished or the poorer West African countries are not able to do that because they just simply cannot afford to walk away from the inducement of uh, payouts from the EU. So that, that is where the, the issue is. It's quite heterogeneous. We are not expecting that as a block. Absolutely all the countries are behaving in exactly the same way and they have the same clout. So there are differences from country to country. My personal uh, preference would have been a negotiation between the two blocks. ECOWAS being represented, the 15 countries being represented by one voice, and then the EU. That would have been probably a conversation between two equals. The way you pick a tiny country like Niger, which is very poor and desperate, and then you negotiate a deal. It is not fair. It's not one that Niger can insist on its rights and its uh, preferences. And so we've talked about, you know, this this imbalance uh, in power, in um, in also level of development. So, you know, what advice would you give maybe to both sides um, to better understand each other? I think now the picture is pretty clear, uh, but also to develop partnership that on the one end, are going to be more balanced, um, but are also going to be more sustainable because what we're seeing over and over is this partnership being, you know, being reached um, and then something is going to change in one of the partner side um, and we're just back to emergency situation uh, with migrants being the victim of, of, this, uh, of this situation. Right, so there's the need for two things. There's the need for honesty and respect. Honesty about the policy priorities on both sides. And then respect in the way relations between the two sides are conducted. Because, unfortunately, there is the tendency for the EU to adopt a condescending attitude when it comes to its dealing with Africa. 
On the other hand, there's a lot of suspicion on the part of African leaders who constantly doubt the true intentions of the EU partners. Now, this is partly attributable to the legacy of colonialism, unfortunately. I know some people will simply wish or want to pretend that this historical fact never happened, but it is difficult to trust someone who has ever picked your pockets, right? So African countries, in their insistence on doing the right thing and doubting, I will also say, should be honest and then refuse to accept payments from the EU if they genuinely know that they are not intending to execute agreements that they've entered into with the EU. So I would say honesty and then respect on both sides is what is going to bring the two parties closer to a level where it will be balanced and then sustainable in terms of negotiations around migration issues. Thanks. And precisely on that, and to conclude on, on a note that's a bit forward-looking, you know, according to you, if yeah. we achieve that, if we achieve honesty and respect, what does the ideal migration cooperation between, between the two continents look like? Is it more legal pathways? Is it fewer people who risk their life um, trying to cross the Mediterranean? How, you know, what's, what's the ideal situation that we should aim towards? Right. So I think the ideal situation will be for Europe to come clean about the fact that it is an aging continent and that it desperately needs the, uh, the youthful population of Africa to support the pension schemes and take care of the aged. That's one thing. Secondly, there is the need for the creation of legal pathways to migration with dignity so that people migrate because they choose to, not because they are compelled to. And they are not involuntarily immobile, as in they are not compelled to stay when they actually want to go. Thirdly, I think the issue of secular migration that allows migrant workers to come and go without being made to feel like they are criminals is one way that uh, we can also look forward to a very positive cooperation between the two uh, continents. Then the final thing that I will say is Africa's willingness to manage an orderly emigration of her citizens and then have the readiness to receive back those who choose to migrate irregularly while supporting victims of forced migration and trafficking. Now, this is premised on more opportunities or legal pathways being created by Europe for labor migrants from Africa to migrate to Europe regularly. If that is the case, then those who choose to migrate irregularly, Africa should be prepared to accept its citizens back when they are returned. But it has to be a win-win situation for the two and not a lopsided situation that benefits one side and then humiliates the other. Thanks, Lander. As, as you said, so much of it is about honesty and respect and building trust between, between two parties that I think have, have not trusted um, each other for, for some time. Um, thank you so much for joining the podcast and, and all your precious insights on the situation in West Africa and also uh, what could be done in terms of man better managing migration within the continent, um, within the region and, and with, uh, with regard to Europe. To all, thank you for tuning in to another episode of Word of Migration. If you enjoyed this conversation, please check out other episodes. You can find Word of Migration wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. 
You can also find all the episodes for this and the other MPI podcasts at MPI website, mpipolicy.org forward slash podcast. And this episode was produced by Youssef Amid and made possible with help from Lisa Dixon and editorial input from Michel Mitterstadt. Our theme music is called Bright Idea by Geographer. I'm Camila Coase. Thank you again for listening and see you next time.